Comic Book Time Machine, Episode 35, Manhunter, Number 4. And now, here's your host, Daniel Butcher. Greetings, time travelers. Now is the time. You've been waiting patiently, but it is finally time to discuss Manhunter number four. Like a fine wine, you cannot rush an adequate discussion of one of my favorite unsung comics of all time. And the wait is finally over for the final issue of the first Manhunter arc. So grab your baton and pull on your masks, because we are going hunting. To pick up Manhunter number four through the mask, you need to set your time coordinates to June 14th, 1988, to pick up this October 88 dated issue. The writers yet again were the fantastic John Ostrander and Kim Yale, with Doug Rice on pencils. We do get a change with inks, though, with Kelly Jones taking over that chore. Mark Shaw stands outside of Cliff House. Olivia Vancroft has agreed to meet him through some creative blackmail. Elliot had contracted had contacted DeVry and pointed out that some legal truths as defined in the DC universe. Dumas was an agent of Vancroft and DeVry. Dumas attempted to murder the Shaw family, and let us not forget kidnapping, including attempts on US soil. Since Dumas was acting on their behalf, they are both legally liable for the assassin's actions. So under the gun of legal action, Vancroft opens Cliff House to a visitor for what we assume is the first time in decades. Mark enters, his, enters and makes his way through the mansion. He contemplates what he sees in the unique architecture. Like its owner, Cliff House was beautiful, but strange. There are no servants, and everything is running on its own electronically. The recluse millionaire has clearly been alone for quite some time. Olivia Vancroft, despite being at least Elliot Shaw's age, is still a stunning beauty. Mark is taken aback. He, is, he instantly asks the woman in front of him if she is the real Olivia Vancroft, or could she be the granddaughter? What is the secret? Her response is money. Age is caused by impurities in the cells. If one cleans the cells, there's no need to age. And she has the money to defeat aging. Bancroft invites Shaw into her parlor, stating, I wish to show you my collection of masks. And on page four, we see the mask room, and it is fantastic! Masks that I can identify for sure include Batman, Green Lantern, Wildcat, and Mr. Miracle. A mask that I question if it is truly his as Booster Gold's. Is that a mask, or is it a hood? What is that, or is it just some other yellow-crafted face? But the one that I really wonder about is Dr. Fate. I really do not believe it should be there. Bancroft explains that her collection is all authentic. The masks were recovered post-conflict, donated, or purchased from other collections. Some of the masks, she thinks, it is best not to ask how they were acquired. Perhaps this was not the first time she has employed Dumas. Why the obsessions with masks, she remarks to Mark. There is a power in masks, Mr. Shaw. Primitive religions, even the ancient Greeks, wore them to invoke the gods themselves. 
To become the god, you wear the mask. For the millionaire, her love of masks allows her a glimpse of mankind. In the masks, she says, you can find can be found the true face of mankind. Of course, when one thinks about it, it is a humanity she has separated herself from. So instead of interacting with the best and worst of mankind, she is instead collecting their public faces, the masks of the good and the bad, the hero and the villain. Mark offers his mask, if she is willing to call off Dumas. She claims she cannot help, and Dumas's mind a contract is sacred and it cannot be canceled. For Dumas, the only way to end the contract is to complete it, or his own death. Bancroft does ask for one indulgence before Shaw leaves. She requests that Mark put on his mask, which serves as a key moment in the entire storyline. I looked at her, and I got the shock of my life. We're left asking, what did Mark see? What did the enhanced scanning abilities of the mask show him? For now, we are not allowed to know. Bancroft returns the Manhunter baton to Mark as a sign of her goodwill to a man marked for death. She remarks that maybe the baton will give him a chance against Dumas. A shocked Mark leaves Cliff House, remarking to himself, See you around? So perhaps this story is not over. Mark Shaw continues in his inner monologue. He seems certain he will see the beauty again, but first he needs some insurance. He quickly sends off two letters. One letter is to Elliot, and one to an unknown recipient. With his snail mail scent, the finest of 1988, Mark returns to his work clothes and to Hill House, Cliff House. He confronts Francroft and declares, I know that you are really Dumas! What? screams the reader. Shaw explains that his mask has the proof of her real identity. The moment he put on his mask, its sensors turned on and revealed the truth to him. Vancroft has the heartbeat of a man, baby! And her voice prints matches Dumas's. And it appears that voice prints are an audio fingerprint. Vancroft Dumas explains. His condition made him not made not just his face, but his entire body elastic. He could no longer have a normal life, normal life, knowing that no woman would ever want to spend their life with him. He created his own. Bancroft was the woman of Dumas's heart, and he loved her so much that he refused to let her age. Over time, other men came to love Vancroft, and Dumas became jealous of these men who could provide Olivia affection. She was hidden. His first creation in Hill Cliff House, where only he could enjoy her. In the end, Olivia and Dumas came to have two different personalities and lives. They became two unique people. As the decades passed, the question became, who was real and who was the mask? Mark explains his letters. If Mark dies, the media will be released confirmation of Vancroft's real identity. Vancroft loses the ability to hold her face and it melts away. No, Dumas will not be blackmailed. Dumas will kill Shaw and then become him. He will then reclaim the letters and kill the Shaw family once and for all. With the challenge in the air, Mark says, Then I'll just have to kill you first. And we reflect on the duo's past. Dumas can kill. He has done so. He's done so without purpose at times. But can Mark kill? Can he be a villain? 
fighty fighty then breaks out on the page and the physical confrontation is awesome while the two engage each other to the death mark reflects on his situation can he kill and if he cannot kill it'll be his family who pay yet again for the manhunter then of course because it has to happen blades fall from the ceiling Mark realizes that Dumas has painted him as a hero, but is he really? Mark has been a villain before, and he decides he will be as nasty as needed to protect his family. Dumas compliments his opponent's skill. He makes Mark a promise. He will kill the Shahs quickly as an honor to a worthy opponent, and Mark can choose to have Dumas kill him or commit suicide. Mark decides that Dumas will have to do it himself, and he will not make it easy for the assassin. He blinds Dumas with light and smoke and sneaks into the collection. And then Mark creates havoc. Mark destroys the death mask of Edgar Allan Poe. And then as fanboys everywhere cover their eyes, he threatens to break even more priceless collectibles. Dumas reveals himself and Mark electrocutes Dumas with his baton. Dumas reminds Mark that he is insulated. Mark sees a metal helmet. He launches it at Dumas and he supercharges the helmet as it hits Dumas's torso. The force of the blast pushes Dumas into the stone behind him. Bancroft Dumas dies on impact. The Shaw family is safe. Mark notes, it's over, but not quite finished. He leaves Dumas's body to be found later, but Olivia will have seemed to have disappeared. She truly is a lady of legend. And then Mark makes one final act to honor his opponent. As he says, I don't know why I left the mask behind. Maybe just to complete the collection. Maybe it was a token for a fallen foe. Maybe it was a remembrance for a strange, compelling, compulsive beauty. It really doesn't matter. I can always make another. After all, it's only a mask. Mark then hangs two masks up in Vancroft's collection, Dumas's and his own. Issue number four gives us our first letter, letters column. And overall, the response from fans tends to be praise. There is one later letter reader who complains that Mark Shaw is a stock character, and he questions the use of a masked villain in the first arc of a story about a masked hero. I personally discount this criticism. Okay, everyone is allowed to have their own opinion, but I've always looked at Dumas's Manhunter's perfect villain. I feel like the mask is part of the attraction. They form a masked yin and yang where I subconsciously look at them both as two parts of the same routine. And I say this with Dumas being killed off in issue number four. Really, should a villain be considered the ultimate villain if he only lives four issues? I'm going to scream yes. Good and important things can happen in short stories, not written to be traded, though this arc is begging to be traded. For heaven's sakes, Days of Future Past was only two issues and they made an entire movie out of it. Good storytelling does not need to be long storytelling, and I love this arc from the first time I read it. And this is where my Manhunter fandom was founded. So two, four, or 24 issues... I don't care, because Dumas made that first impression that always left him as my ultimate villain. As the letter page pointed out, this is this is very spot on for a masked vigilante to have his first story to be about masks. 
But I do feel that this gives Ostrander and Yale a chance to play with the mask motif. And we do not get two very we do get two very different sides of what a mask is and can do. For Van Croft, masks are transformative. She knows they are part of the struggle for the souls of all humanity. And we can see the battles being fought between hope and despair, between selfish le- selfishness and selflessness, between God and Satan in her masks. For her masks allow us to see the best and worst of mankind as they both hide the reality of the soul while also shining a light on the truth in some cases. Mark's view has become the other side of the mask. A mask can transform, but it can also be a trap. For Dumas, the mask paints Mark as a hero. For others, Mark's mask label him as a villain. A little bit of both are honestly true. And maybe, as Mark decides, it's just a mask. It is nothing more than a thing, and he won't be defined by it. After all, he can rebuild it. The mask is not the man. And ironically, Vancroft gets what she wanted in the end. The manhunter mask in her collection. But because she valued the mask more than the reality, the cost was just his, her life. Putting too much value in the mask and not the man was a fatal error. We should note also on the letters page, we're told that we do have a change of anchors. And what happened? Sam Keith left the book to pencil another title. Yes, he he left to pencil a forgotten Neil Gaiman story called Sandman, which he penciled four issues, uh, five issues of issues one through five. Now Gaiman has called these early issues awkward, and Keith did not did leave the title, but the Preludes and Nocturnes arc, which included Keith's work, help establish this key Vertigo title for DC. So maybe it was a good choice for him to leave inks to go pencil a little book that no one reads anymore. Not as important at all as Manhunter. Out of all the items in Vancroft's collection, only Dr. Fate's helmet confuses me. All the other masks are simple cloth and metal, easy to rebuild and duplicate, false faces. But the helmet of fate, per the DC database, is empowered with magic and provides additional strengths to even the most powerful of sorcerers. These powers include fight, flight, illusion casting, invisibility, energy blast, super strength, invulnerability, interstellar tra- teleportation, immortality, and many, many more. It might even toast bread. It is considered the most powerful magical artifact that the world has ever known in the DC universe. So while I might believe she could add it temporarily to collect her collection, the action of adding the helmet of Na- Naboo to it is something that just doesn't seem correct. You just can't imagine the helmet sitting in a museum in a universe where a Dr. Fate is walking around. And since the helm does hold the presence of the magical being Naboo, I can't see the helmet itself just sitting idle, not trying to escape the collection. So I believe the helmet is in the collection in error. Or in my headcanon, since I've decided that these creators are error-free, the helmet is a cheap knockoff with no magical abilities worn by a poor imitation of Dr. Fate. Since the helmet was worn by a person, it is authentic, as Vancroft claims, despite it not being the real helmet of fate. Another issue for me is the voice print claim. Mark claims a, a voice print is like a fingerprint and that Olivia's gave her away as Dumas. This does seem a little out there for me, and it appears that I'm wrong, according to the internet. A spectrogram can be used to manage the 
that measure the spectrum of frequencies of sound. The outputs of spectrograms are often called voice prints. Oh, and currently some big banks, including Wells Fargo, are beginning to record voice prints of their customers as a tool to fight fraud. And the FBI is currently working on ways to use voice prints as evidence, because while they are not as definitive as DNA, they are pretty unique for each person. Though currently, a voice print cannot be used to get a conviction. The variance in voice prints is created by the size of the vocal cavities, which act like a pipe organ. Pipe organ. And the second factor is the muscles of speech, including lips, tongue, and others. The real question isn't, shouldn't Olivia's voice and Dumas's be different? If only Dumas's skin and external attributes were malleable, but internally the cavities and muscles stayed the same, Shaw should have been able to get a strong match. Yes, Olivia's voice may have been disguised, but the spectrogram results would have been the same. So perhaps the voice with the heartbeat was a definitive match for Manhunter, as long as internally, Dumas did not change. The big twist is the gender bender ending, which caught my attention as a younger uh, when I was a youngster because it was totally unexpected. This really is not a twist, though, of alternative lifestyles. This is a twist of two people in one body. Really, Dumas and Olivia are two distinct personalities which share a changeable body and just happen to be of two separate genders. They both know that they inhabit the same space, but both have different feelings and motivations. And to quote the Mandarin, I never saw it coming. So I've always liked it as a cool science fiction twist. I think that the confusion of Dumas's mental state and the personality is one of those things that has always made him an interesting villain to me. There it is, time travelers. Mark Shaw's first arc. It is time for us to go back, 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 even further in time. Next time we gather here to discuss Manhunter time travelers, we will not be going to issue number five. Instead, let us jump to Justice League Volume 1, issue 140, for a story I have never read before. Remember, you can follow my fellow time travelers and myself at www.comicbooktimemachine.com. You can find out about my Disney writings at www.betweendisney.com and you can follow Ben and me as we discuss the Marvel Cinematic Universe at www.welcometolevel7.com with the seven spelled out. Otherwise, remember, good luck, kids. Make good choices. (laughs) 